0: Well, good morning. It's great to be able to be with you all. My wife, Chelsea, and my three kids have so enjoyed connecting with this church. We've joined a small group, feel rooted and anchored in community, and have been loved well by this church. And So I'm thankful to be able to be here to open up the book of Haggai with you all. The easiest way to find the book of Haggai in your Bible is to turn to the beginning of the Bible and look at the table of contents. which. Most of us probably feel too much shame to do in public, but please do. Love covers a multitude of sins. Allow, allow me to pray for us. Lord, we delight ourselves in you. God, I pray that as we study your word right now, that, Lord, you would nourish our hearts Lord, provide food for our soul. Lord, as you said, man does not live by bread alone. And so, Father, we pray that right now you would fill us. Lord, thank you for your goodness and grace. Go before us, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, in my old place in Manassas, we had this little 12 by 12 shed in the backyard that had siding and windows and even drywall and and then heat and A.C. even. Um, But let's just say it had a lot of potential, right? The bones were good. In reality, the drywall was falling off, the windows were falling out, and the giant spider from the Lord of the Rings had cozied up long ago and outbred the termites. But one day while I was staring at it in all of its eyesore glory, uh, I caught a vision for what it could be. This was mid-2021 and everyone else was working from home. I, I thought, what if I converted this thing into a home office? I mean, think of all of the work that I would accomplish in this super hip DIY boho backyard office space that make the HGTV and Instagram influencers jealous. And so I made plans. And then I sold the timeshare of an idea to my wife, who hesitantly signed on the dotted line without knowing what she'd really committed to, and then I bought the supplies. Now, mind you, up to this point, I have never uh, done any construction, woodworking, drywall, or let alone DIY shed rehabs, but I was confident, and so I started. Now, allow me to paint this picture for you. I'm now a week into the project. It's a day that historians will later call the hottest day in human history. (laughs) And my yard has been turned into a war zone as I'm ripping out drywall, tearing up flooring, filling my lungs with dust, because who really wanted to wear a mask in 2021? And all of my tools are either the wrong one for the job or they're inexplicably breaking. Needless to say, discouragement was setting in. Now, surprisingly, I managed to successfully remove the drywall and the flooring, however, only to reveal the greatest discouragement yet, rotted wood in the studs and subfloor. So my confidence had already fallen to historic lows when I poked my wrist with a rusty nail and couldn't find my tetanus records. Um, But this was way worse. I I was discouraged. I felt like I had started this project and now I found myself in deep And not knowing what to do, I felt alone and like it all depended on me to work myself out of it. I mean, I felt a little hopeless, a little alone and totally in over my head. Now, thankfully, after I wiped away the tears from my eyes, I saw my neighbor who lived behind me. And I explained the mess that I found myself in, and he offered to come take a look. Now, by God's grace and to my wife's relief, he's been a contractor all his life. So when he took a look, he calmly said, well, it's rotted. (laughs) Uh, Despite the reassuring comments, I actually felt really encouraged knowing that he was there with me. And in the end, he grabbed the right tools and fixed the rotted wood on my behalf. The HGTV and Instagram influencers never showed up, but it did become my office, and it was awesome. I'm sure some of you have experienced this type of thing before. At one point or another, you've started some project, some degree, some task, only to hit the ground running and find out that you're completely in over your head. In a room this big, I I think it's safe to assume that there are some certificate programs that are still uncertified. Some acoustic guitars are still in the case in the corner. The New York Times bestseller still has crisp pages, the IKEA furniture is still wobbling, and I hope you just ended up taking the car in for the brake (laughs) job. Few things feel more discouraging than finding out this program, this project, this task is way harder than I thought it'd be. I had visions of glory, and yet when I look at my accomplishments, all I see is an unfinished mess. When you find yourself stuck, you feel like it's you against this huge thing and there's no one there with you. Not only do you feel alone, you feel like it rests on your shoulders. That you've got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and measure up. You started this, so you better finish it. It depends on you. Well, Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 actually follows a similar pattern. Israel has begun construction on the temple but finds themselves discouraged, needing to be reassured that they're not alone and that it doesn't ultimately depend on them. You see, what Israel needs in that moment is the encouragement of the Lord Himself. So first, we're going to try and understand the discouragement of Israel. And then second, we'll see how the Lord encourages them. So, to understand Israel's discouragement, I think we first need a quick catch-up on Israel's history up to this point. Hundreds of years prior to Haggai, King David's son Solomon built and dedicated the first temple, and it was incredible because for so long, Israel had been in slavery in Egypt and then wandering in the desert and then transient in Canaan with a sort of portable temple called the Tabernacle. Now, unfortunately, not too terribly long after Solomon builds this new glory-filled temple, Israel turns from the Lord and faces judgment for their sin. The Lord's presence departs from the temple. Judah gets defeated by the Babylonians and taken into captivity, exile. Not only that, the temple is destroyed and reduced to rubble. And this happened a generation prior to the events in Haggai. Then fast forward about 50 years or so, and as the Lord had promised, A large group of exiles were released from captivity and were able to return to Jerusalem in an effort to rebuild that temple. Unfortunately, shortly after starting that work, the nations surrounding Israel got nervous about this building project and started to put up some opposition. So then a sense of spiritual apathy, doubt in the Lord's promises, and the fear of man caused them to give up on building the temple and to instead build their own houses for the next 16 years, which I'll be honest is probably how long it'd take me. So then in Haggai chapter one, which John Frederick preached on two weeks ago, picks up on this group of Jews who are still in that state with the Lord and need to be called up and called out to rebuild the temple once again. And they think about it for 23 days to be precise. And as Steve mentioned last week, the people respond to the Lord's reproof with repentance. They turn back to the Lord. And are filled with a newfound sense of purpose in the Lord's work of rebuilding. So imagine this, you have this incredible moment as a nation, returned from exile. You're feeling a stirring in your spirit by the Lord to work together and to rebuild this temple into its former glory. And let's say maybe if you've seen that former glory, you maybe are a regular attender at Israel Senior Ministry. Uh, Or you've at least heard stories about the former glory. And you know how incredible it was and how as a nation you felt rooted and in the Lord's hand. And how all of that can be true again when you help rebuild this thing. And then about a month later, we get to Haggai chapter 2 and read this, starting in verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So the Lord speaks through Haggai, to the governor, to the high priest, and all of the people of Israel, and then through question form, states the obvious and identifies with how Israel is thinking. He's saying, if you remember the former glory of this temple, this is not it. I know it feels like this is nothing in comparison. The Lord is saying what the people are feeling. God, we turned back to you, and we are going to rebuild this thing. But how in the world could we ever do it. This project is too big for us. Now, Haggai tells us it's only been a month of work, but let's not be too harsh towards them. I mean, every time I I see a restaurant that I'm excited about put up a sign that says coming soon, I know it's going to be like two years before I get to eat there. (laughs) Preparing to rebuild a temple would take some time, marshalling the people, clearing the rubble, drawing the plans. Not only that, The particular month they started wasn't exactly a good month. They had feast after feast on which they couldn't work, not to mention Sabbath days when they couldn't work, and all of it culminating in seven days when they couldn't work, the Feast of Tabernacles. That was when they all went camping in order to remember how God had been faithful to them while they were transient and wandering through the wilderness without a rooted home or a temple. I mean, imagine celebrating that feast. And then looking at the pile of rubble people used to call a temple. And by the way, the seventh month is the same month that Solomon dedicated the temple all those years ago. On top of all of that, the fine wood and gold and silver that had once built and filled the former temple were gone. It had been plundered. I mean, imagine if you parked a Mercedes in a parking lot and left for 70 years. Don't expect to have rims when you get back. The task feels impossible. It feels hopeless. It feels discouraging. I think a lot of us can relate with Israel in that discouragement. I mean, how many of us have heard the Lord call us towards obedience or His purposes in something and then start and then somehow feel more disheartened afterward? Like maybe you heard the Lord say to love your neighbors enough to talk to them about Jesus and so you do and then you engage them around the topic of spirituality and the gospel and you're feeling eager and motivated and and then they share their difficulties about Christianity or their horrible experience in a church and you just feel so deflated and feel like how in the world could I possibly help this person trust Christ? It's discouraging. Or maybe you saw in Scripture that the Lord calls us to a life of sexual morality, and you really want to honor the Lord in that by waiting to marry someone or remaining celibate and abstaining. And so you turn to Him and start figuring out how to walk that out, but you slip up and slip into shame and start to doubt that this part of your life really can be dedicated to the Lord. It's discouraging. Or maybe you feel a sense of conviction that you should help teach your kids the Scriptures. And so you institute daily dinnertime Bible verses to talk through and memorize. And you have this whole epic plan for how you're going to disciple your kids into the next global missionaries the church needs. But your preschooler constantly wants more soy sauce on their rice. Your five-year-old is singing. Your six-year-old is negotiating dessert. Your wife is laughing. And you probably should be switching up the memory verse to, in your anger, do not sin. I'm not saying it's personal. But you know, it's discouraging. Or I wonder, I mean, how many of us are just discouraged with Christianity or the church? Like you love Jesus and you, and you know that the church is how God chooses to proclaim the gospel and make disciples and, and that he calls us to be rooted and known in a local church community. But sometimes it feels so discouraging. I mean, no one's perfect. Relationships are hard. Ministries can never meet everyone's needs, and you can't control what other believers think or post or proclaim. It's been a rough past few years. Barna pulled a bunch of pastors and found that a large amount of them had considered stepping away from vocational ministry altogether. It's discouraging. My goodness, the false church Anglican is no stranger to discouragement and buildings. The Lord called this church to walk in faithfulness and then afterward lost everything materially for a time. Many of you remember the former glory as it were. Discouragement is real. Following the Lord is rarely easy. and The main reason being is that it requires you to trust Him. You see, Israel wasn't ridiculous for being discouraged given their set of circumstances, and you're not ridiculous for being discouraged where you are see, what Israel and you and I need in our discouragement when we're feeling alone and like it all depends on us is to hear the encouragement of the Lord. So let's look next at how the Lord encourages Israel. Let me pick up in verse 4, "'Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel,' declares the Lord, "'be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. The Lord exhorts Israel pretty strongly in these verses. He says, be strong three times. First, To the governor, then to the high priest, and then to all of the people. That Hebrew phrase for be strong is more like be strong-willed. Strengthen your mind. Change your mindset from this will never happen to this can happen. In verse 4, he then reminds them again to work. Continue the work. Don't give up. Focus that strength into accomplishing what is before you. And he tells them to fear not. Have courage. Don't be afraid of what could happen if you start to rebuild this temple. This is really reminiscent of the book of Joshua chapter 1 when Joshua has taken up the mantle of leadership of Israel just before entering the promised land. God says this to Joshua, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you be strong and courageous. He is exhorting him to be strong, to be courageous, to not fear, and to act. But if you're like me, and maybe like Israel or Joshua, you'd hear those exhortations and say, where's the encouragement in that? I can't just make myself strong or courageous. See, when my daughter gets scared during a thunderstorm, I tell her that she's a strong girl and she doesn't need to be afraid. But if I stopped there, I'd be a bad dad. Because she can't just simply will herself into courage. I tell her she can be a strong girl and she doesn't need to be afraid because dad is with her. I'm anchoring the exhortation. I'm giving her assurance of my presence in the thunderstorm. In Joshua chapter 1, the Lord is anchoring the exhortation in the assurance of his presence. It says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. In the same way, the Lord roots The exhortation and the assurance of his presence in Haggai chapter 2. It says, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land. Work, for I am with you. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. The Lord was not telling Israel to will themselves toward greater strength or greater motivation for the work, or greater courage and then leaving them high and dry like a delinquent dad. He is giving them the assurance of His presence, which is the source of that strength, motivation, and courage. The Lord is saying that they can be strong and can work and can be courageous because God is with them. He is the source of those things. In other words, they're not just like packages He ships you on Amazon. They are predicated on His presence. Psalm 46.1 says something so similar. The Lord is our refuge and strength a never present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. He anchors the exhortation of His presence. In the midst of Israel's discouragement and ours, The Lord is exhorting you to be strong, to work, and to not fear because He is with you. He is encouraging you with His presence. Now, you might say that sounds encouraging, but it it just sounds so spiritual and unrealistic. Like, I've never experienced that kind of closeness from the Lord. Well, Scripture promises that by grace, Through faith in Christ, you've been forgiven. You've been declared righteous, promised eternal life, and then been filled with His Holy Spirit. God's presence is with you. But are you ever with Him? I mean, it sounds so basic, but it's real. Do you spend time with the Lord? When was the last time you sat down in the quiet with His Word for an unhurried amount of time? Were you able to read His revealed Word as His revealed Word for you? Were you able to quiet your heart and your mind and talk to the Lord about your discouragement, your fear, or your shame? And talk to the older saints in this church and ask them, how have their most discouraging seasons of life affected their walk with God? I promise you, they will tell you that those were the most difficult seasons of life. They never want to live them again, but it was in the midst of them that they found the Lord to be near. True communion with God is a delight. And I'd encourage you to think of time with God in His Word and in prayer, not as mere obligation, but as subsistence, something you can't live without, daily bread. Thomas Chisholm had it right. When he wrote, Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine unto your presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine, with ten thousand beside. The Lord encourages us and encouraged Israel by assuring them that they were not alone. They had his presence and they needed it, and we need it. But the Lord didn't stop there. No. He also encouraged Israel by letting them know that it didn't all depend on them. Now, I'm going to read starting in verse 6. And I want you to pay close attention to how often the words, I, mine, or a name of God is used. I'm going to pick up in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, declares the Lord of hosts. You tell me, is Israel shaking the foundations of the creation and the kingdoms? No. Is Israel making the treasure of the nations come in? No. Is Israel filling the temple with glory? No. Is Israel bringing perfect peace? No. Over and over again, in verses 6 through 9, the Lord emphasizes that He is the one who will accomplish this work. Israel need not despair or feel hopeless or discouraged because not only do they have the very presence of God with them, He has promised that He will do it all. It depends on Him. See, here's the incredibly freeing truth for Israel. They were not able to accomplish this future glory in and of themselves. Israel could not fulfill the call of God in their own ability or strength or work. They needed God himself to act on their behalf, and God was already ahead of them. See, years prior, when the Jews were still in exile, God willed it that the Persian king who held them captive wrote a decree that released them to go back and rebuild the temple. And guess who was supposed to pay for it? The royal treasury. Now, sadly, this decree actually got forgotten through some inner turmoil and leadership change. But later, while Israel was discouraged about not having the resources to build and fill this greater temple, the check got cashed. That original decree was dug out of some archive, and the wealth of the royal treasury helped fund this whole temple project. See, the building supplies were paid for in Ezra chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It shows us, it says, Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple, which is in Jerusalem, and brought to Babylon, Be restored. And brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. And then after the temple gets finished, guess who paid to fill up fill it back up with silver and gold and even animals for sacrifices? You got it, the Lord. Whatever seems good to you, this is chapter 7 verse 18 of Ezra, whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God, the vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God. You shall deliver them before the God of Israel. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it fails to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. Side note, don't ever tell your kids that, right? It's a blank check. God provided for Israel well before they even needed it. He had set it in motion because He's sovereign and in control. God is the one who provides. God is the one who fills the temple. God is the one who does it all. God fulfills His promises. It depends on Him. This is the redemptive arc of the story of God. We, like Israel... Because of our sin, we're exiled from relationship with God. We were separated and incapable of working our way back into right fellowship with Him. But as we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, now in Christ Jesus you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God in Christ fulfilled what we were not able to fulfill. He did it. We were powerless, but He was powerful. He lived a perfect life in obedience to His Father on our behalf. He died on the cross to take the punishment for sin that we deserved. He rose from the grave, defeating the power of death, and He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. And when we trust in him, we are filled with his Holy Spirit, God dwelling within us. And we are made into the body of Christ, his dwelling place, his temple. Amen? Amen. As Ephesians 2 finishes, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're built On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, God always fulfills his promises Four years later, Israel completed the temple on their captor's dime because God had already fulfilled his promises on their behalf. And when Herod was ruler in Israel during Jesus' time, it was adorned and added onto and was absolutely more incredible than the first. But when the Lord said that the latter glory would be greater than the former, I don't think he was only talking about Herod's temple. Because when Jesus arrives on the scene... He says that He Himself is the temple, and then in Him we are being built into that temple in this life. But there is, in fact, an even greater glory than that where His promise will be perfectly fulfilled, and that will be when this temporary moment has passed. As John records in Revelation 21, he says this of our eternity, passed away. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. This morning, if you find yourself discouraged at the end of your rope, feeling like you're alone, like does God even see me? Does my community see me? If you feel like it all depends on you, like the weight of the world is on your shoulders right now, know that the Lord Himself is with you and that it does not all depend on you, but on Him. And that is the best news ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the freedom of the gospel. We thank You that by it we hear the news that we are not capable of working our way back to You. But Jesus, Your finished work on the cross has brought us back into relationship with You, so that by grace, a freely given undeserved gift, we might be brought back to You, built into a temple of Your presence, Lord, what a joy it is to then worship among the saints of God and to praise You as the God who gets all of the glory. For Lord, it all depends on You. We pray this in Your Son's name. Amen.